0: This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial great AI.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of our Industrial AI Podcast. My name is Robert Weber, and it's a pleasure to talk
0: to Peter Sieber. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, listeners from wherever you are listening in the world. Thanks, Peter. How are you? I'm great, thank you. I already did my fitness this morning. Ah, okay. I'll tell you about it later. Not about the fitness part, but, but thoughts that I had while doing fitness.
1: I'm a bit ill, but I'm still well enough to go for the new section. So let's get started. Good. You want to go on?
0: Oh, sure, I can do it. I was going to say, okay, this afternoon I'm doing an interview with Kevin Clark. He is a VP Time Series ai at falconry and we're going to talk about the impact ai manufacturing i already did not going to go into the details here but those of you listeners what is it two three ago episode 214 i did one with Kurt the chief ai officer side machine we talked about democratization of industrial data by gen ai both of them are u.s companies and that's the point i was trying to going to make here and in the meantime I also recorded with Brian De Bois I was I think he he calls himself Brian De Boy he's the director of industrial AI so and we talk about autonomous AI so All three of them, US companies, Uh, I think we've had maybe one or two, but sure, we must say we're growing out of a a German perspective. You know, we did it in the German language, but that's the thing here. So for you global podcast listeners, you're going to be learning from also in addition US industrial AI companies after we've had mainly German, European companies. And of course, you know, uh, Asian, African from whatever, and, and I think you're giving a comment there an input later on as well. Uh, you, of course, are also very welcome. I, I happen to be meeting here with Kino, Kino and from Japan, right? We don't know each other, actually. <laughs> but who knows? Who knows what's going to come out? Just as one reference, I mean, Japan. And that's the thing. And closing off here as well, It's uh, so. so you and I, we've been talking, and I will be talking even today, a lot about large language models. And we always... Uh, try to and if we don't do reminders, always try to put them in a industrial environment uh, perspective. So that's that first point I was going to make.
1: Yeah. And I have a special greeting to our, to our listeners in Egypt around Mahmoud. We had a lot of traffic on our site this weekend from Egypt, Dubai, Qatar and Saudi Arabia. And I think it was because of your LinkedIn post, Mahmoud. So thank you very much. He talked about AutoML and took a quote out of our podcast. And yeah, we had a lot of traffic from the states. Thanks very much.
0: Ah, oh, yeah, there was a lot of communication going on with that. Yeah, a lot about the history of you know you and I are working on the history of European AI proposal, but also on the history of Automel. Without go- needing to go into the details, but what, what was most in, was not impressed. That's a negative because it was negative, more like flabbergasted. What is the word? Curious? No, it's still not the word. No, but it was like that. so... When I did that many times when we put our podcast live, you know, Barbara puts it live and uh, what is it? <clears throat> A minute past midnight uh, European time. And what I then do in the course of the day or the course of the days, I go into my LinkedIn and, you know, I choose the topic, like the term, in this case, AutoML. Then I find a couple of hundred, a couple of thousand, and, you know, I, I send people, maybe this is interesting for you, I was, I was, I didn't believe there were so many people that had in their profile, their knowledge about Google AutoML, <laughs> what do you call that? We don't want to go back too far in the details. Uh, but it's all about, and I think we've discussed it a couple of times, marketing perspective. So, and Frank then uh, confirmed he never worked at Google, did he say, right? He has, uh, has got a lot of good friends at um, at Google. But there you go. We need to talk about Grok for a moment, Peter. Oh, what is that?
1: Grok is Elon Musk's response to Jet GPT. And it was published, I think, this wo- this weekend. And then the discussion starts. And I have an interesting quote by Greg Tepper, from Pattern AI in San Francisco, and he summarizes his view. So it's a quote. Much more importantly, Grok has been programmed to be rebellious. If that doesn't alarm you, I don't know what will. Humans programming a rebellious AI is a very slippery and dangerous slope. I don't think AI should be rebellious in any way, shape, or form quite the opposite rebellious ai is a precisely what poses existential questions well yeah okay we will be watching this and we have to take a look at grok in a moment it's not
0: available in europe but we will have to look at it sure my first reaction to this i didn't look into the details of what what he has been doing here. He's been doing many things, some of them very impressive, others less impressive. I think I think it's fair to say that, you know, we're moving from where we have been uh, for whatever, 50 or 100 years in an environment of, let's say, newspapers, of radio, of television. And, you know, um, without knowing the details, I know that when when television started right? When was that? 40 years ago. I think they put a person on a, on a chair and the person was talking as if they were talking on radio, right? And they put a camera on it and then came television completely new and so many different directions. And then, you you know, you started, we started a podcast, everybody doing podcasts. So all these media are changing and on top of that comes artificial intelligence, and uh, large language models. Now, those large language models. I think I would I would want to compare it to, you know, having different sources of whatever we, you listeners, consume every day. You know, and and you and I have an overlap. Robert and me, we're doing reading certain things, and you read specific things which I do not read. We all have kind of a bubble, and I believe that's going to be very much the same as I've said before. I think we are going to have in the near future our favorite large language model doing things for us, very similar to maybe, you know, having our whatever uh, car of a certain brand, right? You know, certain people like to drive uh, in a Porsche and fast. Other people look for climate and electric, whatever. So in the end, two things. That's, I think, number one thought is that we are going to be um, using Specific large language models because we know that they behave in a certain way and if people want to have a rebellious version well then that's what they shall be using if people want to be using a conservative so a left of the road a middle of of the road whatever then that's what people are going to do and last thought for us I believe in industrial that's going to be a more like let's say not call it scientific but more like an objective you know it's going to be more of a large language model that is going to know the world of industrial production right so it's not going to know political opinions because we don't need political opinions in production environment or
1: absolutely not
0: so very interesting well was that the opinion of the person who you quoted or was that by by musk who said that no no
1: it's it was the opinion by greg tapper he's a ai guy from san francisco and he wrote an blog article
0: but don't think, I mean, and this is on the topic of bias, which again is more of a, a wider perspective topic, which is less important specifically if you, dear listener, are only interested in an industrial perspective, but then all of you are humans as well, and, and which maybe you do more than just work. But the topic of bias, I'm completely convinced that by, there is nothing exists without bias, and I'm not making a political statement, you know, if we are supposed to behave in a certain way, uh, not even from a morale perspective, but because of law, and, and I'm not putting that into question at all. And we have, of course, different laws in different countries around the world. But the point is, no language model can exist without having implicit bias, Absolutely. It's impossible because it's based on and it doesn't matter. So the next question was gonna be then where does Musk have his well, I think I know the answer. Yeah, you know the answer. Yes, from from Twitter, from X. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's where he has it from. And then Google and OpenAI, all the other ones, we know we have heard of all the resources, books and videos, which was correct or not correct. And all that material which is human Uh, produced material is completely full of bias. Even what I'm saying now, I mean, you and I try to stay out of... I think we stay out. It's not only try, we stay out of politics. That's not... What we want to do here. Uh, but nevertheless, you listeners listen to Robert, you listen to me, and we, we are, of course, in a certain way biased in what we say. And that's why uh, we hope you, you like um, listening to us as well.
1: Yeah, sure. We have a little bias because Greg is uh, very critical. Maybe we found somebody in our t- listeners who already tested Grok. Tell us a little bit more about it.
0: Okay, yeah. So one comment or one piece of information I saw again relating to it's there was a, a paper where they're looking at if a GPT-4 in this case, but all the other ones, they're, they're always all the time going to be tested and related to words. You know, in this case specifically, the number one, the oldest, the during test. And uh, what they found out is that the best performing GPT prompt, it was a prompt in this case, passed in 40%, 41%. And that was then outperforming the baseline that was set by Eliza. You remember Josef Weizenbaum, 1960, I believe, you know, uh, and where he was saying, you know, this has got nothing to do with intelligence. This is just clever programming and but falling short of The baseline set by human participants, that's 63%. One more funny thing is I think
1: the the Deutsche Bank must be worried about its logo because the Grog logo looks the same as the Deutsche Bank logo. So we have also a discussion about their logo at the end. Oh, really? Yeah, it's the same. Absolutely the same. Deutsche Bank logo.
0: Deutsche Bank logo. Yeah, it's the same as Grok. Oh, okay. Did they do it on purpose or? <laughs> I don't know why. Good. And then I'm, uh, I have one more closing off with a very specific, as we said, what is the, the use of local language models in an industrial AI setting? And what we learned is that Siemens, they announced an industrial co-pilot. So that's a generative AI-powered assistant. It's designed to enhance human-machine collaboration, which is what we've been talking about since the beginning. Right. Five years ago, SAP said, you know, talk to your machine boosting productivity nothing new there but still that's of course always going to be the 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 main direction until we move maybe at some point to a higher level that's what we talk about as well and then together with microsoft are going to work together to build additional co-pilots so then for manufacturing infrastructure transport healthcare which is of course the the siemens industries and scheffler you and i know german name it's a leading uh, automotive supplier. They are an early adopter of the Siemens Industrial Copilot, and we are setting up a podcast with the Siemens and Schaeffler uh, responsible persons, which uh, we assume you know uh, you are going to be able to hear at the beginning of the new year.
1: Yeah, I think it will be January or something like this because we have so much topics in the pipeline, Peter.
0: <laughs> yeah, we have. We have. We well, we agree that next year we're going to do a. 50-50 switch between Robert and Peter again, right? We have so awfully many things, yeah. Yeah, and I have one more news from our
1: friend Gabriel Krummenacher from Zulke. Mm-hmm. because together with Bosch Cognitive Services, Zylke optimized the in-house spare part identification service. The goal was to simplify the process of spare part recognition for employees and increase the first hit rate by training a new AI model now it's a quote they streamline data collection the result less effort in searching and a first hit rate of 84 percent i will put the whole text from gabriel in our show notes but it's a quite interesting project we should also talk about this in the near future so we have a lot of topics coming in this episode
0: yeah amazing i was going to say what i'm going to be doing next week yeah um, i don't know in detail what i'm going to be doing so so
1: You are in Berlin next week, Peter. Machine Learning Week. Share some details with
0: us. Yeah, well, we, of course, already had in our podcast uh, Will von der Aalt Oh, yeah. Recall, that's, you know, a month or two. No, before summer, we recorded that, I believe, right? So he's going to be doing a keynote on the first day. Mind your own business, how object centering centric process mining improves the things you do not see and which is a little bit of shame that it's at exactly the same time first morning but i um i contacted uh, hans uh, usko He's co-founder, chief scientist of Nionic, um, and he's going to be doing another keynote uh, about foundation models, potential diversity and limitations. So I requested a 15-minute uh, interview, which um, he confirmed. Looking forward to that as well. Oh, and then there's there are so many, there are so many. But in in our track, there's a couple of um, you know people that you have uh, listened to before we're going to you know have Anamaraike Schlinkert from Katulu we're going to have let me see from ABB I think Azam from ABB yeah uh, ABB yeah ABB here we're going to have as well yeah so uh, it's uh, Azam Kotrivala is going to be talking about the AI based remote operator support from the dragon offshore oil platform and there's a couple of others you know we've had here uh, Mikael Haft um, he's going to be talking about from correlation to causation oh
1: i remember this episode <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: you remember about the gray hair and the glasses right yeah There's no correlation (laughs) (laughs) even. Oh, there is. Maybe there's correlation.
1: (laughs) Maybe there is,
0: yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'm mixing it up again. So, so many other people. And this is only the industrial AI, which I assume, if you still haven't decided, most of you listeners might be interested in. And it always goes together with two other tracks. So one is the track that is on business. And the the third track is uh, deep learning. So it's more the uh, technology-specific track. Okay. So it's, it's totally focused on LLMs or do
1: you also have other topics?
0: No, no, no. I mean, it was, it has been, you know, machine learning from the beginning. And I think we've been talking a couple of times about, you know, where do you put uh, LLMs? But yeah, I'm very certain that in addition to what I just mentioned, the talk by Hans. Uh, there's going to be at least you know, the third keynote is already about that game changer, generative AI, our ChatGPT and co are transforming, disrupting businesses. So I'm most uh, certain. But then again, you know, we started, I guess, looking at and people applied for slots, I guess, over half a year ago, and I I don't have the feeling that over half a year ago. The importance of the large language models were that strong, but and I think in the meantime we've seen. And if you look at that, so those of you interested, you haven't decided yet. Look at the uh, agenda. We will put the uh, URL in the speaker notes as well. Okay, we already do- talked about large language models and generative AI.
1: Now we switch into the main part because I did an interview with Jakub. Tom Tuck from the you know, Technical University of Eindhoven. And we talked about the new paradigm in AI. It's called generative AI. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe they talk together, the two of them,
1: all right? Okay. Yeah. And it's not all about Chet GPT. And it's quite interesting what Jakub is working on. So listen to the main part now. Peter. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I wish you a great week in Berlin. I love the city so much. Hopefully you can share some details from the conference in our next news part.
0: Yeah, I will certainly do that. I'm sure that it's going to be, in addition to the ones I just mentioned, I'm sure there's going to be a handful of very, very interesting topics, which then, you know, I'll try to make sure we'll we'll include in future podcasts as well. Thank you, Robert. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. It's a pleasure to talk to Professor Jakub Tomczak
1: from Eindhoven University of Technology. Hello, Jakub.
2: Hello. It's very good to be here. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Thank you. You had the Generative AI group there. It's a pleasure to meet you. Can you please introduce yourself briefly to the listeners?
2: Yes, exactly. So I am an associate professor at the Eindhoven University of Technology, where I am the PI of the Generative AI group. And I've worked on Generative AI for many years, like I think 10, maybe 12. But in general, I would say I always like to think of myself as a machine learning guy
1: core. And you also work with Max Welling in Amsterdam, right?
2: Yes, precisely. I was Maria Skodowska Curie Individual Fellow in Max Welling's group.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. You mentioned 10 years. So we talk a lot about generative AI and many tools. And you do research in that area since 10 or 12 years. Are we talking about the subject generative AI in the wrong way in the moment?
2: So yes and no. Because, of course, on one side, I would say that generative AI democratized AI tools in general. So it's like something like it's very easy, almost like off the shelf. You can use uh, pre-trained models, so this is like a big breakthrough in my opinion. But on the other hand, the, the no right to this answer is that it's basically generative way of thinking. Is we can date it back to the origins of machine learning. So even you know the simplest naive-based model, it's a purely generative model. Of course, very simple, very naive as the name states. But this is like this way of thinking. This way of thinking of what is a potential generative process in our data or how we can mimic the generative process of data so this is the core of the generative AI paradigm Uh, so yes so so yeah this is something like it dates back
1: okay so is it a new paradigm of AI? Uh,
2: so I would say w- what is new maybe is that we can build. Now we have many, many tools provided by deep learning. And we can re- really train very complicated, very deep hierarchical models. And so this is something
1: new. And when you do research since 10 years, what does... Generative AI means for you and your group, or what makes your research, your definition different from our known tools?
2: When I think generative, I immediately have in mind probability. And so I always think there are like two main pillars, and there is the third pillar for generative AI. So the first pillar is the probability theory. So, how we can formulate probabilities, beliefs about our environment. So, this is the first pillar. And again, so we we can think of generative AI as a way of how the world works, how we can model it, how internally as an, I don't know, a human person or an agent, how I can figure out what's going on around. The second pillar is how we can parametrize. So how we can model these probabilities. And here, deep learning comes into the game. Deep learning Neural networks, they help us how we can process data in such a way that we can produce probabilities. And then the, and the third pillar is that we have applications that reinforce these two things. So
1: the power, the deep learning power we have, they only one part of the generative AI, right?
2: Yes, precisely, definitely.
1: But why we are we so focused on this deep learning?
2: Yeah, so deep learning is amazing in the sense that we can... In some way, bluntly speaking, can dump a lot of data at our models, like parameterized by neural networks, and they can figure out correlations. But these correlations in data, they figure out these correlations in this extremely you know intertwined way, in the sense that we have they learned correlations of correlations of correlations, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So we have very complicated relationships. And that's why deep neural networks are so
1: amazing in your group what are you certainly researching on generative ai
2: in general we look at various classes of generative models like you know transformers so autoregressive models variational auto encoders diffusion models etc but when we go maybe more into applications so we are interested in like molecular modeling like for instance, the novo drug design. So this is, in my opinion, amazing application for generative
1: AI. Can you go a little bit in details?
2: Yes, exactly. So the idea is that we have like the the space of all potential molecules is like 10 to the power of 60. Some people even say that it's more. And so this is like when we have a specific target, some for instance, enzyme to inhibit. So to you know, for, I don't know, like even COVID-19. So there was some protein, right, in in, in viruses that uh, we can stop and then they they cannot reproduce. So this is the, you know, very tangible. And so now we want to think of some uh, molecule that will work in the best possible way. So it would stop it and would not kill the host. And so here, Generative AI is very handy because we have a lot of data available and we can train a general model. We can call it a chemical foundation model. And then we can fine-tune it for one particular target, so let's say COVID-19. And so now we can start generating in silico. We can start generating potentially interesting molecules, and so then we can drastically shorten the whole, you know, pipeline in a way or process of creating new drugs, because then you know this is the chemists that they need to think of specific molecules and then they need to go to the wet lab and figure this out here we can help them we can assist them we can present some interesting molecules and they can use their background knowledge and they can say oh actually this is most interesting and we can help them
1: what are the weaknesses of these models
2: right this is a perfect uh, question if we think from this more engineering point of view so we want to achieve some goal Uh, What you definitely miss is some kind of like background knowledge. So in my opinion, what is very important nowadays is to incorporate some sort of this symbolic AI kind of thing, like maybe knowledge graphs.
1: Knowledge graphs, yeah.
2: Yeah. So this is something that we can steer deep generative models towards some specific like regions in the weight space, I would say, such that they are, for instance, trustworthy. So they, they don't fantasize. They don't create some unrealistic uh, objects.
1: Do you think that generative AI will displace everything now?
2: Yeah, so I don't think so. So I, I, I really think that we will learn how to use generative AI tools in a better way.
1: What does it mean in a better way?
2: Yeah, in a better way, I mean that they will not replace people, but they will really assist. And of course, maybe they will replace some jobs. However, I'm not 100% sure. It's like with with every revolution and definitely generative AI is some sort of revolution. So there are these doubts, there are these fears that, oh, it will uh, take our jobs. I rather think that, you know, maybe let's say that we have a generative model as a a general practitioner and maybe we can assist a lot of people and they don't need to go out and check some symptoms. Maybe they can very quickly check them online and then we can, you know, personalize uh, medicine.
1: So you've been researching this topic for 10 years. Why is the breakthrough with LLMs now? What is your opinion?
2: Right. So I think that there are maybe like very simple answers to that. Of course, we have transformers. So this was the first stepping stone. I think that the second important aspect is that we have now hardware. So we can really fit these enormous neural networks and we can train them. And the third thing, and now all my colleagues in academia probably will help hate me for that, but I think that that we have Google, you know, Meta, Microsoft, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, Qualcomm, etc. So Bosch. So that they work, they are in the game, they also push the boundaries further. Because in academia, we typically are happy with showing that something works, but then we, we need the industry to actually- Build a product. Exactly, to the product. And I think that these three components, they, they were altogether very important that now we have these large language models.
1: But what comes next after vision and large language models?
2: Yeah, so this is another great question. I think this still molecular modeling, it is something that it will be very important. We have isomorphic labs, So a spin-off of DeepMind. So they put a lot of efforts into that. So this is definitely important. I think that we'll have like a lot, a lot of interesting applications of LLMs that we even don't, uh, can imagine now. Like, I don't know, in, in legal aspects, right? Also, we tend to think of LLMs as tools for natural language. However, we have so many different languages, like, I don't know, some diagrams. This is also a kind of language. So, we'll probably see a lot of very interesting, and we see already very interesting applications of LLMs to, to these different languages. So, this is
1: for sure. So, you mentioned these generative democratize machine learning. There's also one community, the AutoML community. Can you compare both worlds?
2: Right. So, this is like fascinating. I have a very good colleague at the TUE at Eindhoven, Joachim Fanschore. He's a worldwide expert. And in my opinion, like AutoML, it's still like a huge community, extremely interesting. But I think that LLMs and generative AI in general, I think they have this advantage that you can create like amazing things that you can very easily show to the public. And with AutoML, I think when you come up with like extremely well optimized uh, model, I think if you go to a random person in the street and say, hey, I have this amazing model, they would say, good for you. But if you go out and you can play, for instance, I don't know, uh, Donald Trump speaking using voice of Barack Obama, everyone would say, wow, right? This is something like cool.
1: So it's a show effect.
2: Definitely, I, I think that this is this show effect. That's for
1: sure. And do you think that the AutoML community has a future on this topic? AutoML.
2: Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I definitely believe so. I think that you know this is like if we think about how we work, right? So, like, as human beings, so or animals, so we definitely have this kind of uh, processes, you know, encoded, hard coded in ourselves. Like to optimizers and models, etc. So it's like, definitely.
1: You mentioned this topic, trustworthy. How do we get these models trustworthy?
2: Right, so this is something like, uh, in my opinion, a very, very interesting topic and extremely hard at the same time, because I think that this is like we are stepping into, you know, philosophy and ethics. Does it mean something is trustworthy, is a fact, really a fact or just a factoid, right? But what I mean by that is that you know i I'm, I'm not a philosopher so i always assume that okay we have some knowledge you know written books we have something that we can rely on and if we want to get some models to work quickly and, and trustworthy so then we should figure out how we can take this knowledge written somewhere and how they should control steer generative models like a little bit you know when probably a lot of people heard how uh, chat gpt was trained, right? So we have this human in the loop. So in some way we can say this is like knowledge in the loop. And I would say that, okay, now it's maybe a, a point that we should figure out how we can use another model, knowledge graph,
1: for instance, and how we can put it in the into the loop. When we talk about generative AI, do we speak about big data? Because in our domain, the industrial sector is all about smart data or small data approaches. How difficult is that?
2: Right. So another brilliant question. I I think that in general, this is how it will go, in my opinion. So what I mean is that if we take a small baby, it is born without some vision, for instance. And then this vision is built in some way and then in some way we can say that like baby everyone we can say that we look at some kind of a video so we have like almost infinitely many images in front of our eyes and so we train like on a crazy amount of data but then when it comes to i don't know training a medical doctor so then this person sees maybe one thousand cases right and this person is trained so there's you see the analogy so it's like we need to have this general uh, quote unquote rules right in our heads such that we can then fine tune ourselves on some specific data. So to me, this is how I see how, and also why uh, generative AI is so amazing because first it is pre-trained on this general data. And then you exactly as I said before, you take it off the shelf and then you fine tune on your data. I think this is like this uh, step towards this AGI,
1: right? Almost. But will there be special generative AI models for industrial applications or do we will see general AI models? I think they will be specialized, to be honest, models.
2: Because in academia and in the in, for these general purposes, we can Say, all right, for instance, ChatGPT is amazing. It, it makes some errors, but still it's amazing, right? You can't do that in engineering or in an industry, right? So you have to have a model that is fully trustworthy. And so, like, I remember, I forgot the name, but one of the CEOs of big companies said, well, we, we will need these five nines, right? So 99.99% of... Absolutely.
1: Reliable, trustworthy.
2: Exactly, exactly. And so I think that to implement these models in the industrial setting, we will definitely need extra tools to that
1: what kind of extra tools
2: yeah i think that exactly like maybe some sort of knowledge graph some sort of additional inference methods that will ensure that it is not diverging somewhere
1: okay and who can build such models or knowledge graphs who do you see there
2: i think that to be honest we are slowly getting there because i see more and more papers on that but I think that this will be maybe something like new emerging uh, subfields of generative AI that will require this, you know, data engineers, knowledge engineers, and uh, generative AI engineers, maybe.
1: So that's a new new market for in the industrial sector, right?
2: I think so. I would compare it to, like, there are these two fields, right, at the moment, or two camps, these data-centric people and symbolic AI people and they have their tensions. And I always uh, look a little bit amazed at them because I would say, uh, guys, you should work together because separately you can't achieve the same goals as uh, working together. Mm
1: -hmm. So in your opinion, there will be specialized, I don't know, companies building generative AI models, uh, knowledge graphs for industrial applications to use generative AI.
2: I think so. I think there will be specialized companies That will have quite constrained but specific knowledge, and they will know how to build this knowledge and how to incorporate it into, I know, ChatGPT.
1: Okay. And these big models like ChatGPT or all other LAMA and large language models, we will use them in the industrial sector with this knowledge graphs from these companies, right? Or am I wrong?
2: No, no, I think so, yes.
1: But is there also an opportunity to build specialized? large language models or vision models for the industrial sector? Or do you only see there a market for this engineering, knowledge graph, engineering, whatever?
2: So I also think that the specialized, let's say, foundation models are how we want to call them. there Definitely, there will be a market for that. And the one example could be this Palm two, I think now we have. So for medical applications, for computer vision Definitely, I see, you know, stable diffusion being trained on some... And we saw like for manga, for instance, right? The mid-journey, etc. So we already have that and we'll see definitely more and
1: more. But I think this discussion about foundations models, when we talk to, to big players... And to small and medium-sized automation robotics companies, nobody wants to invest in a huge foundation model because everybody is afraid of, oh, I don't want to use the foundation model from this big automation company because there are competitive my competitors in this market and I'm not sure. How do you handle this? Do we need a broker in the middle or what is your opinion on that?
2: That is very interesting. I would say that I think that there is a need of a company in between, like some kind of specialist that they specialize in in developing such models uh, and also fine-tuning such models for specific uh, companies. That's for sure, because I think, say, a company, I wanted to say company X, but these days you can say because it has a meaning, some company uh, Z or Y. So they want to... Create own model, so then they would need to create a completely new group, right? And so this is definitely not feasible. So these companies in between are a must, in my opinion. And now also comes into the game what you said, Robert, before, so that then maybe this end company provides this very high quality data, and then this is like their IP. This is something that they hold and they they have.
1: How long will it take until we have this? kind of foundation models in industrial applications jakob what is your opinion
2: i think that it's already happening i think that we don't hear everything what companies do so when i talk to companies so they always say you know we are doing something we're trying something and should we invest more etc etc so i think that what we are missing exactly is maybe and we have some companies but we really miss these this brokers, as you said. I think that this field, and again, maybe a lot of people would hate me, but, you know, suddenly we have a lot of generative AI experts.
1: Yes, yeah, sure.
2: <laughs> but this is not so easy, right? And to, to get these experts, I think we'll need to wait one, two more years because it's just simply so fast growing and so fast developing field so that it takes time. And so probably we will see more and more these smaller companies that are specialized in generative AI. But again, in my opinion, there will be not one generative AI uh, company. It will be more like, hey, we specialize in medicine and maybe images. Hey, we specialize in uh, medicine in text. Hey, we specialize in molecular modeling.
1: What makes a generative AI expert for you?
2: So in my opinion, a generative AI expert is not someone who knows how to get a model off the shelf and fine tune it. In my opinion, a generative AI expert is someone that really has the background knowledge, like knows various classes of models, knows why different neural networks needs to, need to be used for specific models, how to you know maybe how to train these models, why exactly this foundation's model, etc., etc. And also, I would say a lot of knowledge from the math machine learning NLP if this is for NLP computer
1: so it's more to, than to write a good prompt
2: exactly precisely <laughs> precisely exactly like that yes
1: a few years ago we told the industrial sector use machine learning invest in AI and now the next step is coming with generative AI and the companies realized their first project on vision on predictive maintenance and stuff like that do we overestimate generative AI a bit for this, let's call it mid-sized company?
2: Yeah, so I, I would be very, you know, unpopular after this podcast because I would, I would say that we, we do. So we overestimate it a bit. So when I always talk to some potential partners, it's like when they ask me, hey, okay, should I implement ChatGPT? I always ask this question, do you really need that today? Because I would say that most of the cases could be solved by well-done data engineering and data science, not even AI, right? It's like really these two tools combined. But what is beautiful about generative AI is that we realize that actually the ceiling is, is not our ceiling. The ceiling is even further. And that we can now have really crazy ideas because it's so now democratized. So we can very easily use something off the shelf. And so this is beautiful about generative AI. But going back to your question, it's really like proper data engineering, proper data science. It's like probably the answer to many, many needs,
1: actually. Jakob, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank
2: you very much. It was a pure pleasure for me.